Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. series about what it means to be a resilient disciple and we've been looking through the book of Romans we've had some fantastic teaching and it's all available there online if there's anything you need to catch up on I am sort of circling the runway this morning and um, next week Viv is bringing it into land my remit is to talk about what it means to me Um, I'm guessing that's because I've been around the block a few more times than some of you, and uh, I might have been a follower of Jesus for more than some of you have been alive. Although I recognize a few, I dare say, old faces this morning, which are extremely welcome. Um, Inevitably, I've been through hard times and easy ones. It's been interesting to hear some people's stories this morning. And most of us, particularly with the last year that we've been through, I think if we're getting washed and dressed in the morning and you vaguely know where to find your Bible, you're doing pretty well. So well done you. I do think, though, that this series should have had a theme tune. I feel like we've really missed a trick there. And uh, for me, it would have been Elton John's I'm Still Standing. Uh, I don't know about you, it feels a little bit too early for karaoke this morning, otherwise I might have given it a quick blast. I think it would have been the Apostle Paul's theme tune too, though. He writes in another letter to the Ephesians, after you've done everything, stand. And sometimes that's all that we can do. In this letter to the Romans that we've been looking at, Paul has laid down the foundations of our faith and practice and laid out the core of the gospel message on which we stand that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It is a far-reaching and well-formed argument on humanity's need for a saviour and what it means to live in the light of that. But what I want to think about today in the light of the brilliant teaching that we've had during the past few months is who was Paul and why should we be listening to him in the first place? Why is it that his writing fills so much of the New Testament, and my life particularly has been shaped by it? After all, we're talking about a 2,000-year-old text with references to slavery and sacrifice and circumcision. And whilst we might acknowledge that this text makes sense from a theological perspective, why should we listen to Paul? And what did discipleship look like for him? And how does that compare with our lives in London today? Paul can come across as this highly educated, highly religious scholar with a few swashbuckling church-planting adventures under his belt. But if that's all we know of Paul, we're really missing the point of why his theology is so compelling. This wasn't a man writing in the latter part of his life from an ivory tower, telling the rest of the Christian world how to live and what to do. This was a man whose life had been shaken apart, and I'm not sure that he ever felt like it had been put back together. We first hear about Paul in Acts 7 and 8, when we read about the persecution of the first Christians. Paul was then known by his Hebrew name, Saul. He was a well-educated Turkish Jew, about 30 years old. And he's the witness to a murder, which he watches with approval. The man who is killed by an angry mob is a leader in the early church. 
and this is the first of many violent incidents. What we see in Paul at this stage, the way we're introduced to him, is sinister. We see in him both a rigid commitment to his childhood faith and a ruthlessness that didn't flinch at where that was going to take him. But he wasn't just a religious enforcer. He was also a member of the religious elite in his community. Everything about his life was governed by his faith, from what he wore to what he ate and even who he could talk to. And whilst not a priest, he was considered a religious lawyer who knew exactly what heresy sounded like and the lengths he would go to to protect his community and his beliefs. These two contrasting elements of Paul's character conjure up for me the worst kind of religious fundamentalist. Someone who would use their faith to justify their violent or abusive treatment of others. Now, if that paints one sort of incomprehensible picture of Paul for you, here's another. This is the same man whose letters fill the New Testament, who wrote one of history's most compelling descriptions of love, and whose writings are held up as a guide to the life of a disciple. People read his words around the world every day. You may have read some this morning. So what was it that happened to him? Well, you can read in Acts chapter 9 of his dramatic conversion experience, and it is pretty dramatic. He's blinded by a light, he hears the voice of Jesus, he's confronted with his destructive behavior, and then he is given a new name and a new purpose. But after this, he heads off into the metaphorical wilderness for three years. We know very little about his time there in an area that was then called Arabia except what we can guess from some of the things that he later writes. Up to that point, Paul only knew about Jesus from the people that he had persecuted, and it was time for him to get to know Jesus for himself. And when he does return three years later, he is not the same person that he was. He is no longer a religious extremist driven to violent oppression, but he's also no longer respected in his community. Everything he'd grown up with, everything he knew, everything that gave him identity and security was all around him still. But he was out of sync with it, out of sync with the world around him, out of sync with everything that he had ever known. So after seeking Jesus for himself, he sought out those who knew him best. And he headed to Jerusalem to meet Jesus' friends who were still alive at that stage. Paul wanted to ask them to help him make sense of his new faith and to figure out what it looked like to be a disciple. So knowing Paul's story at this point, his dramatic conversion, his time spent reconfiguring his faith and his arrival in sort of Jesus HQ, we might say, Paul, where's the podcast? Tell me how it all worked out. Tell me how you landed that excellent job, how you met your wife. Tell me how you settled down. Tell me how it all figured out and the book deal. Because all things work together for good, right? And that's what that means. But it isn't what it looked like for Paul. And I think it's what comes next that really matters for you and I. Paul lived much of the rest of his life on the run, in relative poverty, either making tents or dependent on the hospitality of others. 
He had no home. He had been estranged from his family. And he went around making claims about a dead man that he had once denied. He felt compelled to tell everyone about Jesus everywhere he went, despite the risks to his life. He could be fierce and determined. He frequently got into arguments. He was beaten, arrested, and shipwrecked. And he spent much of his life in prison or under house arrest. But here was a man who had been transformed by the grace of God. And he was loved and imitated by others. Paul describes his own life in this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons in the right, of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. I don't know about you, but that's not the picture of a resilient disciple that I see and hear so much about today. That seems so much sort of shinier than this, and a lot more, if I'm honest, indistinguishable from anything else. The difference for Paul seems to be this. He writes again under house arrest, Philippians 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This man, whose theology we've been learning from, is also sharing a testimony of what it means to truly be a disciple. And it seems to me that it reflects a much easier life on the inside for him than most of us have experienced, and a much harder life on the outside for him than most of us are willing to endure. A third of the New Testament is full of his writing, not the crisp white pages of a theoretical faith, but a sweat-stained story of an unconventional but flourishing life. When I read his words, I'm not thinking of a sunset background on Pinterest. I know that he's talking about his lived experience of the sustaining peace of God in the midst of his difficulties and longing. The challenge for us is that we rarely hold up the life of a poor celibate man who is mostly unemployed, living in other people's houses, estranged from his family, at risk of his life as something we think worthy of attention today. But that was Jesus' life too. Too often the picture we have of a disciple is shaped by a worldview that is unrecognizable in the New Testament. And we've somehow made the outward signs of an acceptable faith a substitute for a call to an inner sacrifice and an outer service. And that couldn't be further from the gospel. Paul knew that Jesus came for those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, 
who know they are sinners in need of a saviour and for whom discipleship is both the crucifixion and resurrection of their daily lives. So how on earth did Paul live like this? And how can we possibly live like this? We see these recurring themes throughout the New Testament and reflected in Paul's life. And they have deeply shaped my own and sustained my faith. For me, they rather embarrassingly, but most conveniently, all begin with the letter P. There's four, actually. But it's the fourth one's a bonus. I don't think they'll come as any surprise to you. But in the midst of all of life's challenges and comforts, they are worth remembering and holding on to. The first is the person of Jesus. Paul really knew the person of Jesus. Yes, he'd had a dramatic experience at his conversion, but he spent a really long time figuring this out for himself, listening to those who knew Jesus best, and the rest of his life making sure that his faith was fit for purpose. This is Paul writing again, still under house arrest. He's reminding his readers of his status, significance, and security before he knew Jesus. This is in my version, Philippians 3. He says, In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, the religious elite. You couldn't get better than me. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. I was all in. I mean, enthusiasm, 11 out of 10. And as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. I was perfect. But whatever were gains to me, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And he had. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. And this was the Jesus that Paul clung to, in and out of prison, through hardship and uncertainty, loneliness and misunderstanding. Jesus was more real to him than all of that, because this was not a distant and untouchable God to him. This was not a God who was cold or comfortable. This was Jesus, an incarnate God, a lived-in God, and a broken one at that In Jesus, God would clothe himself with the skin of humanity and he would live not just a nice moral life with a bit of the supernatural thrown in, but a radically different sacrificial life shaped by love, which would end up with him being criminalized, arrested, tortured and killed. We will always seek power and strength. So God identified with the weak and the powerless We will always seek perfection. So God made himself broken and bruised. We will always seek to perform our way into status and significance and security. So God came to rescue us before we had a chance to do anything about it. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. Paul writes in Romans 5, you see, 
At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person. Someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God died for us. Do you know this Jesus? Do you see him as a good man or as a miracle maker? Because he was both and so much more. No other man has made the claims that Jesus has made, and that requires a response. I have found the biblical narrative, even with all its frustrating, embarrassing, and downright offensive parts, the most compelling story. And in Jesus, I face a particular challenge. He was God in the flesh, with all the limitations of time and energy and resources that we face. He wept, got dirty, hungry, and tired. God came as a man when most of us think that being a Christian is about escaping our humanity. But Paul was under no illusions about the best and the worst of us. He was no self-help guru, but he talked openly about his emotions, his anguish and his joy. He shares about his need for his friends. He describes his deepest struggles with great vulnerability and he brings it all together in Christ. Paul recognises what it means for us to be driven by our desires, to fulfil our own needs with instant gratification and temporary comforts. We will do anything to mask the pain inside of us. But to acknowledge that pain is to be human. And Jesus took on our humanity so that he could meet that pain in us face to face. And then we would know God with us in the midst of it all. Paul shows us what it looks like to live differently because of Jesus. And in the person of Jesus, you will see a radically alternative way to live how to be truly human and filled with the Spirit of God. And that's my second P, the power of the Holy Spirit. Of his daily life, Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith through the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So in order for our lives to reflect that, for God to be in the flesh, in us, we need the power of the Holy Spirit, not just for signs and wonders, as wonderful as they are and as much as we need them, but so that slowly and surely God might do his greatest miracle in us. Paul understood that salvation was both liberation and formation. In the light of his childhood faith, he saw this clearly, that first the children of Israel were liberated from slavery in a dramatic exodus from Egypt. And then they were formed by their long desert experience, dependent on the provision of God. Paul's first encounter was with Christ. This literally left him blind. He became completely disorientated and was in such shock that he didn't eat or drink for three days. But his second encounter was with the Holy Spirit when he was filled with God's empowering presence. And after that, it was as though Jesus was alive in him. 
And the weaker Paul was, the more he lacked, the greater the gap in his life between where he was and where he felt he needed to be, the more room there was for God to fill. In 2 Corinthians, he writes in God's words, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect or complete in your weakness, in your lack, in your poverty, in your insufficiency. If we believe that being a disciple just looks like having our lives together all the time, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Unfortunately, the things that the world values most are not measures of the kingdom. For some of us, our marriages will fall apart. Our health will fail us. Our finances will be insufficient for us. Whether any of that's because of our own actions or someone else's. Some of us won't get married. Some of us will struggle with sex and intimacy, whether we're married or not. Others of us will struggle with addiction, with physical health or mental illness. Let's not pretend that none of these things are true. If we cannot come to the foot of the cross and be honest about what's going on in our lives, I don't know where else we can. Let's patiently and persistently work through these things together. But God is not looking for successful superhumans. He's looking for faithful friends. You see, salvation is not a magic wand. We cannot stick Jesus over our dysfunction and expect to live healthy, holy lives. Salvation gives us liberation, a freedom from slavery, which is the metaphor that Paul uses over and over again. But health and holiness take formation, little by little, turning our stuff over to Jesus, turning our attention towards Jesus' way of living and becoming filled with the power of God. Paul's relationship with the Holy Spirit was active and participatory. He uses words like equipping and empowering so that we might know the fullness of God. If we want to change, if we want to grow up before we grow old, God has the power to change us, but we have to take the necessary steps to do that. We are formed by the things that we do and we become what we pay attention to. So who do you want to become? The next thing I want to talk about is the presence of God, which, of course, you can't really separate from the other two Ps, but sometimes we manage to. And I find that unless I get myself regularly into the presence of God, it is still easy for me to keep God at arm's length. Paul knew the presence of God. He would have been deeply familiar with Exodus 33, where Moses stands and God calls him to take the people of Israel on. And Moses says, I will not go without your presence. For Paul, we can't always know if the presence of God was as real for him every day in prison as it was at his conversion. But we do know that Paul knew God as a daily lived experience. Of course, God is with us whenever and wherever we are. And sometimes help is just the best prayer that you can pray. But if you want to learn how to exchange your unrest or your dis-ease for God's peaceful presence, you do have to sit still long enough for that to happen. Slowing down our lives is not just the latest Christian well-being fad. It is good for our souls. Of course, it's not that God can't keep up with us. It's that we cannot keep up with ourselves. We wear ourselves out with too much activity and not enough rest. 
too many distractions and not enough time to hear ourselves think or feel, let alone hear the voice of God. There simply isn't enough room for God in your life that way. The writer to the Hebrews reflects Paul's language when they say, take off the things that so easily entangle yourself and instead fix your eyes on Jesus. Give him your full attention, letting go of what the world expects of you and put on the character of God. Earlier we read Paul's words, I have learnt the secret of being content. There is no sermon, book, podcast or Insta story that can teach you that. There is no sermon, book, podcast or Insta story that can teach you Paul's secret. Only practice. Developing holy habits over the course of your lifetime because the person of Jesus and the power of his spirit is more necessary and attractive to you than anything else. It is not easy, but it is that simple. That doesn't make you holier than anyone else. That will actually make you more human in the way God always intended for you. So make time, make room for the presence of God in your life. But forgive me if that sounds comfortable or convenient in any way. We're not talking about offering God a slither of our day that we might ask him to bless what we do. We're not inviting him to become a lodger in our house who we pass on the stairs once in a while. When we talk about making room for God, it really is just the first and necessary step that we might take to turn our lives over to him, to surrender our circumstances over to him and to allow him to invade our lives. We might not be able to relate to Paul. Few of us will be religious extremists, I imagine. No hands raised for that. But we certainly know what it is to be hypocritical and judgmental and self-righteous. Few of us will be violent and abusive to those who disagree with us. But we certainly know what it is to be angry, impatient, jealous, insecure and unkind. Our conversion might not be as dramatic as Paul's, but the same God is at work in us. And we know that Paul was transformed from the man he was into the one he became. And despite all his hardships, perhaps because of them, he knew the love of God for himself and those around him and nothing could separate him from that. And that's why I'm willing to listen to him, to learn from him, to read him and to practice this myself. It is Jesus that I am following, who I want to become like. But Paul does show me how to do this. He knew the person of Jesus, the power of his spirit, and what it means to live in the presence of God. But there's one final thing, and Joe talked a little bit about this last week. I have overemphasized the personal to make my point this morning. But being a follower of Jesus is a contact sport. It is not a solitary experience. Paul ends the book of Romans on chapter 16. You should go and read it. And it is full of a list of people. And that's my final P. Not just a register of names, but personal greetings to each and every one. These were Paul's friends, men and women. And there's a lot of women there. Whatever you heard about Paul and women, it's probably not true. 
He mentions a lot of them as leaders and co-workers, as well as slaves. Some of them had been freed and some who weren't, but government officials too. These were all kinds of people in all kinds of places with all kinds of histories and all kinds of colours and backgrounds and financial means and stories and histories. All kinds of people. We cannot do this alone. As my dear friend Fred likes to say, being a disciple is a group project and not just with people who look like us. Ultimately, all that's asked of us as disciples is that we love God and love our neighbour. Not a mythical person, though, who's really easy to get on with, but the person in front of us. My small group helped me with the language for that again this week. Just the reminder that it's the one in front of us that we're called to love. It is simple, but it's not easy, especially when you read what Paul had to say about love, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I don't know about you, but I want to love like that. And to do that, we have to trust God with our lives. It's not always going to look the way that we want it to. In fact, it's going to be really hard sometimes. But Paul's life reminds us that sometimes we're in danger of overestimating God's desire to deliver us from difficulty. And we're underestimating his ability to be with us in difficulty and transform us through it. Let's stand. Sometimes that's all we can do. Could I have the band back? Lord God, we are conscious of your presence with us this morning in the stories we've heard and the prayers we've already prayed. And uh, we just ask for more of you. And we acknowledge that when we, when we invite you to come and when we ask for more of you and we choose to make room for you, it is just the merest thing that we can do, but it is our best step in the right direction. So would you increase your presence right now? What we mean by that is, is can we open up more of our hearts to you? Would you increase our capacity for you? We pray for every person at home, in bedrooms and kitchens and living rooms and gardens, maybe even, listening to this on the podcast, on a bike. Would you touch every heart? Would every heart know that you have called them by name and given them a new purpose? Would every one of us know in the midst of our difficulties that you are present, that you did clothe yourself with humanity so that you might know how we feel and you poured out your spirit on us so that we could know what it's like to live like you did? So come, Lord, fill us as we worship now. Come and be in our midst. Bring your healing, bring your power, and most of all, just increase your presence. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.